Radioactive Tritium Lies The nuclear industry is planning to dump millions of tons of radioactive tritium-contaminated water from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean and from the now-closed Pilgrim nuclear power plant into Cape Cod Bay, meaning the Atlantic Ocean. The nukesters claim the water is safe, not a problem, and don't worry your pretty little head about it because, hey, it's only tritium. But then a real expert explains just a few of the dangers of what is called tritiated water. And when he says, When tritium gets inside you, we don't really know where it goes. Does it go to your liver, your kidneys, brain? The real answer is, it goes everywhere. It goes, gets into every cell where there's water. If the tritium happens to land next door to a DNA molecule, it's very dangerous indeed. What the nuclear industry and ICRP say, oh, well, we're just average over the whole body. You can't do that. And there's a form of tritium called organically bound tritium, which doesn't just go over the whole body. It sticks to carbohydrates, proteins and lipids inside us and stays inside us for a long time. Well, that doesn't sound very safe, and it's quite a wake-up call. So when a genuine expert like radiation biologist Dr. Ian Fairley explains in detail why the nuclear industry's downplaying of tritium dangers could lead to a massive release of radioactive water into both the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, You see how that short-sighted industry manipulates public perception in a way that puts the whole world into that deadly radioactive seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week marks the 11th anniversary of Nuclear Hot Seat, and we celebrate with a great interview with radiation biologist Dr. Ian Fairley. He explains what radioactive tritium is, what it does to the human body, and why the planned release of tritium-contaminated water from Fukushima in Japan and the Pilgrim nuclear power plant in Massachusetts are dangerous, wrong-headed, short-sighted moves. We will also have Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat hot story, as well as nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than we've heard come out of Ukraine for a while. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June 21st, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Of worldwide interest in the past week, 
was the Vienna Conference on the Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons. It was a one-day expert-level meeting organized by the Austrian government to focus attention and deepen engagement on the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons. Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, who presents our Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story every week, was there, and we will catch up with her and her comments in the coming weeks. For now, we will link to the live stream of the entire conference on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 574. From the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, we learn that three new states have signed on to the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons, Cabo Verde, Grenada, and Timor-Leste. That brings the total number of state parties that have ratified the treaty to 65. Australia attended as an observer, and three First Nations survivors of nuclear testing in Australia shared their stories at the Vienna Conference. They are calling on the Australian government to sign the treaty, saying they are facing intergenerational trauma from nuclear tests carried out in the 1950s in outback South Australia. Also observing at the Vienna Conference were the Netherlands and Belgium. At the same time, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or SIPRI, is warning that the risk of nuclear war is higher today than at any time since the height of the Cold War saying the global stockpile of nuclear weapons is expected to soon rise for the first time in decades as the United States, Russia, China, France, and the United Kingdom move to expand or modernize their arsenals. We will link to an extensive article warning specifically about the nuclear threats in an interview with Alexander Kment, chair of the Vienna Gathering, that was published in the Japanese paper The Asahi Shimbun. Here in the U.S., Washington State Governor Jay Inslee said that in a worst-case scenario, environmental cleanup of the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in southeast Washington might not be completed for another 150 years or possibly never, and says the White House must do more to avoid radioactive calamity at Hanford. In Pennsylvania, the damaged Three Mile Island reactor gets a new corporate overlord, parent, again, a company called Triartisan ES Partners, which collects brands like Cannery Casino Resorts, 8 O'Clock Coffee, P.F. Chang's Chinese Bistro, and TGI Fridays, now has control and believes it can complete the TMI reactor's cleanup for less than the money set aside in a decommissioning trust fund. Eric Epstein of Three Mile Island Alert is asking the NRC to take a second look and is seeking to block the transfer, in large part because he's concerned that the ratepayer-built trust fund attached to the license to pay for TMI Unit 2's decommissioning will come up short and eventually saddle taxpayers with finishing the job. Epstein said, Sadly, we devolved to the point where Sarah Lee is cleaning up Three Mile Island, and Triartisan is not financially or technically capable of cleaning up the site of the nation's worst nuclear accident. And now, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. FEMA, the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency, that group in charge of all emergencies in this country, has come up with a spiffy new document, planning guidance for response to a nuclear detonation. Did I say document? 
It's 250 pages and a wonder of newspeak that starts from the supposition that a nuclear bomb blast is survivable. This, of course, is based upon projection explosions of a 0.1 kiloton, 1 kiloton, or 10 kiloton bomb when Hiroshima and Nagasaki were both 15 kilotons each, and today's nuclear weapons are many magnitudes more powerful and deadly. It starts out with a ludicrous scenario of what would happen in a nuclear blast as emergency planners, led by a woman, so you know that FEMA is being progressive here, snap into action in the wake of a blast. The ensuing text indulges in confusing labels for impact zones, for radiation exposure, and excess of acronyms, urging that survivors should be triaged properly, and tells us that survivors only need to shelter from radiation for the first 24 hours. Oh, really? Tell that to the survivors of Hiroshima, who went searching for remnants of their family members and previous lives in the radioactive rubble a full month after the detonation, and then they died from radiation exposure at a rate of more than 100 a day at just one hospital. The lies and confusion of this FEMA mess create an intentional compound fracture of the ability to understand WTF is written. I only lasted about 15 pages before my brain imploded. It just served to remind me that when the government says, after a nuclear blast, shelter in place, that can be interpreted as code for, we don't want to have to be cleaning up bodies from the streets, so just stay put and die invisibly at home. And most significantly, this confusing tome never tells you the most universally accepted response to a nuclear explosion, namely, kiss your ass goodbye. And that's why, Intentional obfuscators at FEMA who came up with this planning guidance for response to a nuclear detonation. You are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. We will have links up to two articles, Meltdown at Palisades Averted, and The Bomb Next Door about the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Over to Japan where that country's top court last Friday dismissed claims that the government should pay damages in cases involving around 3,700 people whose lives were seriously affected by the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. This absolves the state of responsibility for mass evacuations in the crisis, and the ruling leaves Tokyo Electric Power Company Holdings, TEPCO, the operator of the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant, solely responsible for slightly over 1.4 billion den, the equivalent of 10.5 million U.S. dollars, in damages in four lawsuits. Following that Supreme Court decision, the leader of the plaintiffs from Fukushima Prefecture, Nakajima Takashi, said many people without the means to evacuate have had to keep living there while fearing radiation. He said the ruling is absolutely unacceptable as they are still struggling. At the same time, Local governments of the prefectures, cities, towns, and villages affected by the nuclear accident have filed claims against TEPCO for personal expenses for temporary staff, expenses for purchasing air dose meters, and PR expenses for countermeasures against reputational damage. The claims are for more than 6.3 billion yen, 
or the equivalent of $46.5 million U.S. dollars, but TEPCO has neither paid nor approved compensation. The prolonged evacuation from Fukushima Prefecture has taken its toll with many disaster-related deaths. This is based on harsh conditions surrounding evacuation, repeated shelter relocations, and feelings of loss regarding one's hometown. All these have been destroying the physical and mental well-being of elderly people and others in Fukushima. Meanwhile, an aging nuclear reactor in central Japan's Fukui Prefecture will resume operations in August, about two months earlier than scheduled. After being offline for about 10 years, Kansai Electric Power Company's Mihama No. 3 reactor started up last June, was shut down after four months, and now it is planned to restart on August 12. Japan just never learns. Regarding Ukraine, here is another incisive, hot story from Linda Pence Gunter. You might think that being in the middle of a war, the last thing you would be contemplating is building more nuclear power plants. But that hasn't stopped Energoatom, the Ukrainian state nuclear operator, from forging ahead with nuclear expansion plans. Earlier this month, Energoatom inked a new commitment with Westinghouse of all companies, the American corporation that went bankrupt trying to build four of its AP-1000 reactors in South Carolina and Georgia. The two in South Carolina were canceled mid-construction, while the pair in Georgia are years behind schedule and billions of dollars over budget. But like a good corporate vulture, Westinghouse has swooped into Ukraine to grab a golden opportunity. Already the supplier of nuclear fuel to almost half of Ukraine's reactors, the company now plans to increase that commitment to all 15, replacing Russia's Rosatom. It also plans to establish a Westinghouse engineering and technical center, and craziest of all, build nine new AP-1000 reactors there. Westinghouse already has the contract to build more reactors at the two-reactor Hmalnitskaya nuclear power plant, which remain partially complete. Talks this month also looked at Westinghouse building two more reactors at the site. Apparently, having 15 operational reactors in a war zone just wasn't high risk enough. And it is a risk, a terrible one. Even if one of those reactors were fully breached by an attack, accident or meltdown due to grid failure, the amount of radioactivity released would dwarf the 1986 Chernobyl disaster. But to add nine more? We've already seen multiple incidences of Russian missiles flying low, too low, over both the six reactors at Parisia site and now, more recently, over the three reactors at the South Ukraine nuclear power plant. The humanitarian catastrophe that is already unfolding in Ukraine would be magnified beyond imagination were one of those missiles to malfunction and hit a nuclear plant. I say malfunction because we still rest on the assumption that even Putin would not be reckless enough to deliberately order an attack on a nuclear reactor. All of this is testament to the misplaced cachet still held by anything nuclear. Somehow the possession of both nuclear weapons and nuclear power plants is seen as prestigious. Indeed, Energoatom announced this latest deal thus, and I quote, every such event in energy too brings the victory of Ukraine. It's not really clear what, if anything, will bring victory to Ukraine and at what price. But building more nuclear power plants there only achieves one thing, putting the people of Ukraine in even greater danger, war or not. 
Reactors are vulnerable to failure and they make deadly radioactive waste, lethal for tens to hundreds of thousands of years. There is nothing victorious in perpetuating that, just utter folly. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. And in Finland, the start of energy production at Finland's long-delayed Olkiluoto 3 nuclear reactor has again been postponed, this time to December, due to repair work. The reactor is 12 years behind schedule. The French-developed European pressurized reactor model was designed to relaunch nuclear power in Europe after the 1986 Chernobyl catastrophe and was touted as offering higher power and better safety. But EPR projects in Finland, France, and the UK have been plagued by delays and cost overruns. In this latest delay, quote-unquote foreign material, which was not identified further, was observed in the turbine's steam reheater. In Canada, radioactivity in fish and shellfish samples from the west coast of that country were studied by the group Integrated Fukushima Ocean Radionuclide Monitoring which the acronym of that is INFORM. A total of 621 samples of commonly consumed salmon, groundfish, and shellfish were collected between 2011 and 2018. 19 fish had detectable levels of cesium-137. Two of these 19 fish also had detectable levels of cesium-134 which is a short-lived isotope, and showed clearly that fallout from Fukushima was present in these particular fish. It was determined that the contamination in these fish from the nuclear accident was 49% and 24%, with the majority of cesium contamination coming from other sources like nuclear weapons testing and the Chernobyl disaster. Also in Canada, the recent relicensing hearing for New Brunswick's Point Lepreux nuclear reactor highlighted the difficulty and cost of managing the province's long-lived legacy of radioactive waste. No waste disposal site exists or is planned for Point Lepreux, which, when it is decommissioned, will become thousands of tons of radioactive rubble, classified as intermediate and low-level waste. During the hearings, a main focus of the Piscatamukati Nation's intervention reflected their concerns about the lack of adequate planning for the toxic decommissioning waste. The nation is and always has been opposed to producing and storing radioactive waste on its territory, which includes Point Lepreux. And we'll hear more about this story in today's interview with Dr. Ian Fairley. In the UK, seismic testing planned for this summer off the coast of Cumbria to investigate the feasibility of depositing heat-generating high-level nuclear waste in a nuclear geological disposal facility runs the risk of harming marine life. We'll have an article that we will link to on the website. That's NuclearHotSeat.com. This episode is 574. And also link to an article on the French nuclear power crisis frustrating Europe's push to quit Russian energy. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, happy anniversary to us. Yes, today's show marks Nuclear Hot Seat's 11th anniversary of providing weekly programs on nuclear issues from that all-important, different perspective. That's 574 shows 
an audio history of what we've been going through week by week since three months after Fukushima began. Where else would you find this kind of information? Not in mainstream media, that's for sure. Nuclear is unfortunately not going anywhere. Not the weapons, the reactors, radioactive waste, the contaminations we already face. And it is important that we all understand what's there, what we're up against, and what, if any, steps can be taken to fight against its expansion and mitigate the problems it has already created. That is why Nuclear Hot Seat is here, and has been for 11 years and counting. We're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories with context and continuity, so you can understand the full picture. We cover not only what the industry is doing, but how brave activists around the world are taking steps to fight back against this forever contamination of our precious planet. And that's why we need your help to keep doing this work. In honor of our 11th anniversary, how about sending in a donation of $11? Be this a one-time donation, or you can set up a monthly recurring donation of any amount, you'll be helping to keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running and providing you with cutting-edge information on what the short-sighted nukesters are doing and steps we can take to protect ourselves. It's easy to make a donation of any size. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and hey, send us $11, maybe 12 so there's one to grow on. As we launch into year 12, thanks for all you've done to help, what you're doing to help, and know that I am grateful for your support. Now here's this week's featured interview. The nuclear industry is fond of treating radioactive tritium as some kind of benign radionuclide. Not dangerous, nothing to get your knickers in a twist about. That's in order for them to be able to dump massive quantities of tritium-contaminated water into our oceans and indeed be generated at every nuclear reactor in the world. This pacifying narrative could not be more wrong, and today's guest has a lot to say about it. Dr. Ian Fairley is a London-based radiation biologist and independent consultant on radioactivity in the environment. He has been a consultant on radiation matters to the European Parliament, local and regional governments, environmental NGOs, and private individuals, with a focus on the radiation doses and risks arising from radioactive releases at nuclear facilities. We spoke on Thursday, June 16. 2022. Dr. Ian Fairley, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. It's my pleasure, Libby. Let's give people a brief rundown on your background and the focus of your work, your field of expertise. Well, I'm a radiation biologist by training and university degrees, but my focus has been on radioactive waste and in particular tritium, the most common radioisotope in the world. And it's dangerous. It's been a, sort of a lifelong hobby in many ways. In answer to your question, what, I, what am I? I see myself as a, a, a citizen scientist, somebody who tries hard to explain to the public radiation and radioactivity are not the easiest things in the world to grasp, certainly at, at, at first, uh, first sight. And my main purpose is to try and help people overcome their fear about radiation and radioactivity and help them understand it a bit. When 
you do your work, which has been extensive and worldwide. Who hires you and what do they hire you to work on? <laughs> well, they hire me mainly to make estimates of radiation doses and risk as a result of planned discharges. I'm hired to comment on government reports, in particular to identify areas where the reports have been less than accurate, not quite correct, scientifically speaking. In other words, to provide a critique to official sources of information. That's basically what I'm about. Recently, you published findings on Canada's New Brunswick nuclear reactor at Point Lepro on the Bay of Fundy. How did you get involved in this and what were your findings? Basically, there was a government set of hearings on whether to give a license, an extended license to the nuclear power station at Point Lepro, called New Brunswick Power as the name of the utility. Um, a NGO, and it was non-government organization, called the Passamaquoddy Tribe of uh, Native Peoples, asked me to look at the proposed licensing that would have occurred and comment on it from a critical point of view, which I did, and sent it to them. And there were hearings on video, um, online, and I appeared online and gave my evidence to the hearings in St. John, New Brunswick. What I wanted to point out was that, particularly for, for your U.S. readers or listeners, is that Point Pro is about 35 kilometers from the United States border, very close to the border between New Brunswick and Maine, up in the northeast corner of the United States. It's very close probably the closest nuclear reactor in Canada to the United States, I'd say. And the thing about it is that Point Pro is a very old reactor. It's been running for about 35 years or so. And the amount of tritium that it puts out is humongous. It's the single largest emitter of tritium from any reactor in Canada. Um, because the Canadian heavy water reactors are the biggest tritium dischargers in the world, then if Point Lepro is at the top of that list, then it's the highest in the world. I haven't heard from whether any American NGOs have expressed concern about this. I just don't know. But certainly the native peoples in New Brunswick are very concerned about it. The thing is that the native peoples take their lands and their waters their environment very seriously. It's extremely important for Native peoples, quite rightly too. Um, when you have despoilation at this kind of magnitude, it's obviously a major concern to them. So I was hired to do a critique of the an environmental impact statement by New Brunswick Power. Let's take a moment here before we return to more on those findings to explore what is tritium and why is it so dangerous? Tritium is the radioactive isotope of hydrogen. Its most common form is in radiated water. I'm pretty sure that your listeners will be aware that water consists of it's H2O. 
two hydrogen atoms stuck onto a oxygen atom. The thing is that one of those hydrogen atoms is radioactive. That's tritiated water. You can't separate tritiated water from ordinary water. They're both water. Actually, topically, they are slightly different, but you can't really separate them at all. It's very, very difficult. And the thing is that when very large amounts of tritiated water are discharged both to the sea or to the air in terms of water vapor from all nuclear facilities. Now, why is this dangerous? Well, the reason why is because human beings are mostly water. Two-thirds of our body weight is water molecules. So if you're talking about a contaminated environment, we as human beings are in the firing line, and it should be a worry to all people who live near nuclear facilities. Should be. The problem is that when you have a nuclear facility like Point Repro putting out very large amounts of tritium, terabecquerels, that's mil, uh, trillions of becquerels of radioactivity. What's a becquerel? one disintegration per second. So you have humongous amounts being shoved out every year. And the thing is that people downwind breathe it in. Because it contaminates food grown locally, they eat it. And because it contaminates the water supply near nearby, they drink it. So there are three different ways, in fact, four different ways that people can get it. The fourth way is by skin absorption. Now, with other radionuclides, that doesn't happen. Why does it happen with tritium? Because it's water. And we, our body avidly takes up water. So your next question will be, is this a worry? I mean, are there any risks? I mean, what do we find? Well, we find that if you look at epidemiological studies of people near nuclear facilities, they all show increased incidences of cancers, leukemias, lymphomas, and also of birth defects, which is precisely what we would expect to see if tritium were affecting the DNA of people who live downwind of a reactor. We see it. The trouble is that the people who conduct these epidemiological studies, they fiddle the results. I'm afraid that these scientists are hired by the nuclear industry, and the nuclear industry do not want to have results which show, whoa, these um, results uh, show increased incidences. So what they do is they say, the results are not statistically significant. And they throw it into a waste bin. They throw the results into a waste bin. Well, that's wrong. You don't do that. What you do is you try and get lump studies together so you can get statistical significance. But they don't do that. We'll do this little study here. No, we don't find it. It's not statistically significant. This is the misuse of statistical tests. But the trouble is, I'm in, talking about things which most of your listeners will find difficult to grasp. This is a scientific argument amongst statisticians. Um, all I can say is that when you look at big studies, put together as a bunch of small studies, you do attain statistical significance, there are genuine increases there. Maybe if I can give you a little analogy to explain why statistical significance 
is important. Say you have a coin you think that has been doctored, so that if you flip the coin 10 times, instead of getting five heads and five tails, you get six heads and four tails. Is that a meaningful result? It's hard to tell. Maybe, maybe not. Flip the coin 20 times and you get 11 heads and nine tails. Is that significant? How about 15 heads and five tails? Yes, that is significant. So you see what I'm getting at? The more, the bigger the difference from what you would expect, you get significance. And the best way is to do take 100 flips of the coin. And if you get something like 60 heads and 40 tails, hey, that's significant, all right, the coin's bent, okay? I'm going to leave it there. And I'm just trying to give you an idea of what happens when you do these epidemiological studies. The trouble is that the, the researchers who do it make false conclusions. You speak with forked tone. Shouldn't really do it. I've heard it said that there are three kinds of liars in the world, that there are liars, there are damn liars, and there are statisticians. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. By the way, can I say that not all statisticians are bad, okay? And just recently, um, uh, last year, a whole bunch of statisticians around the world and the American Statistical Society for us said, let's throw out statistical stat uh, testing. It's more trouble than it's worth. And uh, there you go. By the way, the worst culprits of statistical testing were, guess who? The tobacco companies. Back right. in the 60s and 70s. They would do little studies here and little studies there. No, there isn't an increased level of cancers. It's, well, there is a little increase, but it's not statistically significant. So when tritium is characterized as a so-called low-risk radionuclide, how accurate is that? Inaccurate is wrong. There have been quite a few study reports showing that tritium has got a high RBE. What does that mean? It means relative biological effectiveness. Relative to what? Relative to x-rays. This is radiobiology 101, by the way. Basically, if you were to look at a, a lot of radiation, x-rays, gamma rays, they have a relative biological effectiveness of about one. Basically, tritium is about two to three times more effective than x-rays and gamma rays. And when you say effective, you mean impactful on the body. Yeah. yeah. When people say effective, this means dangerous. It's a nice word for it. Scientists, uh, like ICRP people, say, ah, it's more effective. Yeah. I.e., it bloody well kills you. So in comparison with other forms of radiation, tritium is actually more dangerous, more hazardous, okay? That's point one. And another thing is that when people in the nuclear industry say that tritium isn't dangerous, what they mean is that outside the body, it isn't dangerous. But they don't talk about what happens when it gets inside the body. There is a real problem here because when tritium gets inside you, we don't really know where it goes. For example, does it go to your liver, your kidneys, your brain, what? Well, the real answer is 
it goes everywhere. It goes gets into every cell where there's water. Wherever there's water, tritium goes, okay? And that means that if the tritium happens to land next door to a DNA molecule, it's very dangerous indeed. Now, what the nuclear industry and ICRP say, oh, well, we just average it over the whole body. Well, uh, you can't do that. And there's a form of tritium called organically bound tritium, which doesn't just go over the whole body. It sticks to carbohydrates, proteins, and lipids inside us and stays inside us for a long time. Stops being tritiated water and now becomes organically bound tritium. What is it bound to is bound to carbon atoms. That's why it's called organically bound tritium. And that stays in the body for a long time. That is far more dangerous than tritiated water. But that's what happens. When you take in tritiated water, some of it gets bound up into organically bound tritium. And has the nuclear industry got a handle on that? Not in the least. The thing about it is that there's a great deal of uncertainty about what actually happens to when we are exposed to tritium. Now, that should be tinkle warning bell, ding, 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 ding. We should be applying the precautionary principle. And what is the precautionary principle? Precautionary principle said very briefly is err on the side of caution. If there's um, evidence which suggests that something could be dangerous, act on that evidence, even though it might not be complete. Basically, what you're saying is that you're going to err on the side of safety, basically it. Um, of course, the nuclear industry doesn't like that at all. They would much rather that we err on the side of danger. And that's exactly what they do do. I'm, I've been pressing for a long time that we should be going for the precautionary principle. It's been enshrined in United Nations conventions. I have to say, Libby, that it's more honored in the breach than in the observance. Basically, it means that a lot of lip service is given to it, but it's never really taken into account. We should, but we don't. So now we have a much fuller understanding of what tritium is and what the dangers are that it poses. So getting back to the nuclear reactor in New Brunswick at Point Lepro on the Bay of Fundy, you've already said that it is the most tritium producing nuclear reactor in Canada. And that means in the world. So how does Canada allow this level of tritium to be released? And are there specific problems with where Canada sets its limits or lack of limits? Yes, it's got the, the most lax limits on tritium in the world by far. It says that um, the allowable safety limit for tritium in drinking water is 7,000 becquerels per litre. Just remember the, the number 7,000. In Europe, it's 100. And in a number of um, safety reports in Canada, even, consistently said that the number should be 20. In California, for example, the number is 18. In Colorado, it's 15. Ontario is 20. But of course, the trouble is that although these committees in Ontario have recommended figures, very tight standards, the, the government's concern 
have flouted them. They've just said, no, nope, we're not having that. Um, you can just go get stuck. We're going to have the 7,000 limit, which is crazy. It's really, in my view, Canada, this is a, the limit put out by Health Canada. Oh, Health Canada. Unhealth Canada is more like it. Basically, Canada should be ashamed of that. By the way, I can say that because I am Canadian, so therefore I'm allowed to criticize my own country. But it's really, really terrible. And the reason why the, the limits are so lax is because the nuclear industry has, has got the government on stranglehold. Basically, the nuclear industry tells the, the government what to do. And the Prime Minister of Canada, Trudeau, is very pro-nuclear. And he says, yes, sir, no, sir. Three bags full, sir. I'll take all that and give you anything you want, effectively. It's all done very quietly, by the way, but that's exactly what's actually happening. Let's move this along, because you've also published recently on After the Meltdown, the risks to reactors in a war zone and potential health consequences, with the focus being on Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine and its takeover of the Zaporizhia nuclear power facility, as well as the recent missile flyover at South Ukraine. What happens at a reactor during a major nuclear power disaster? This report was written, co-authored by myself and Cindy Falker, who works for Beyond Nuclear out of Washington, D.C. She's a tireless worker, and she contributed a great deal to the report. Basically, what the report says is that there were a missile strike, God forbid, at a nuclear reactor anywhere in the world. But right now, when you get a war zone in uh, Ukraine, that's the major worry. If the missile were to strike a major part of, an important part of the reactor, for example, the cooling circuits, or even if it were to penetrate the biological shield and get inside to the reactor shell itself, you could have explosions, meltdowns, and you could have discharge of large amounts of radionuclides, as happened at Fukushima and, of course, at uh, Chernobyl. But what happens then is that um, we're at the mercy of the wind. People living downwind of the reactor will be exposed to large amounts of radionuclides, um, breathing them in. The radionuclides, if they're if they're not uh, volatile, they'll fall to the ground and contaminate the ground, like cesium and strontium, for example. But if they're gases like iodine gases or xenon or even water vapor, uh, tritiated water vapor, and that's another gas, those gases will travel downwind and affect people the quickest. By the way, that's what happened um, at Three Mile Island back in 1979. Um, you had all these radioactive gases come out being released and affecting people and livestock and pets downwind. So that's what will happen if, um, what would happen if there were to be a missile strike at a nuclear facility. The point is that Nuclear facilities are not designed to be operated in the war zone. <laughs> it sounds silly to say that, but it's true. You've got to have a stable society. You've got to make sure that nothing's going wrong like this. And that's patently not the case in Ukraine. And of course, many, many, many people are worried about this. Touchwood, so far, there's been no attacks on any of the 15 
nuclear reactors in Ukraine. And let's just hope that that situation continues. But it's a worry. It's a major worry. Going back to the tritium issue, currently there are right now two cases where citizens are fighting back against planned releases of tritium-contaminated nuclear reactor water into the ocean. The first is by Tokyo Electric Power Company at Fukushima in Japan, where at this point they have something like a million and a half tons of water from that accident in tanks that Japan next year is planning to just dump into the Pacific. And also in Massachusetts, Holtec, which is decommissioning the Pilgrim Station in Massachusetts, is planning to dump their store of spent fuel pool water, which also contains tritium, into Cape Cod Bay, meaning the Atlantic Ocean. Thus far, these are being treated as two separate stories. But is there any substantive difference between planned releases of tritiated water in these two areas other than the ocean that it would be going into? No, they're both the same. Tritium is tritium. The main thing that I would look at is the concentrations of tritium in the uh, two cases. I don't know what the concentration will be at Pilgrim. I do know the concentration at Fukushima is one million becquerels per liter in the tanks, although they plan to dilute this down to 100,000. And that's still very, very high. Strongly recommend that this doesn't occur. And if I was asked the question about what should the Japanese authorities do, they should build more tanks. And if that costs a lot of money, well, so be it. Safety first. Precautionary principle. You have a primer on radiation and radioactivity. What is it? Who is it intended for? And how can people obtain a copy of it? I belong to an organization, CND, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. And uh, when the attacks occurred on the nuclear reactors, where there were six reactors operating, many people wrote to us and phoned us, emailed us and said, tell us more about radiation. The thing is that most people don't know deadly squat about radiation. That was actually intentionally programmed in at the beginning of the Manhattan Project. I have 10 years of research and a two-act play that I'm writing that is about one of the individuals who was responsible for this. I have to say that it is shocking, the level of disinformation. Um, The biggest level of disinformation was when Eisenhower talked about atoms for peace. Eh. Um, Rather than atoms for war, hey, there's no difference. They're both the same. Basically, all of the facilities which are used in the nuclear power program are the same as those used in the nuclear weapons program. The way I look at it is that they're two sides of the same coin. They are inextricably linked, umbilically linked. So people who try and make a difference between nuclear weapons and nuclear energy, it's a falsehood. It's a shibboleth. So don't be taken in by it. Many people think, or it's a received view of history, shall we say, that the United States was justified in dropping the bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki because it stopped the Second World War. Well, it may have contributed mildly, but the main reason why Japan surrendered wasn't because the bombs had been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was because of the defeat of the Japanese armies in two major land battles in Manchuria by the Soviet Union. 
Why do I say that? Is because in Japan, the samurai tradition, the warrior tradition, is land based. It's armies, and the armies of Japan were very, very important, more so than the navy. So that when the, the Japanese army was effectively wiped out in these two massive land battles,、um, which are very poorly reported in history, this was July 1945. Japan surrendered. In many ways, the bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki were icing on the cake. If anything, it wasn't the real thing. In fact, some reports say that Japanese military were much more affected by the fire bombing of Tokyo than the bombing of. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They were further away down in the south, too far away from the capital to be of any major importance. You won't hear people who defend the Manhattan Project saying anything like that at all. But it's true. There's more truth to that than the biased reporting put out that the Manhattan was the be-all project was the be-all and end-all and saved us from World War II. It didn't. So what purpose was it? From my research, among other things, it was. Two billion dollars of U.S. taxpayer money that went to a project that nobody knew even existed, and they had to not only prove their existence, but they had two different models of the bomb, and they had to test both of them to see which one would be better. Really bad something, Libby, is the fact that the Manhattan Project still continues today. If you look at all the nuclear laboratories, Berkeley, Lawrence Livermore, Hanford, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, you name it. How many nuclear facilities, weapons facilities are there? Dozens, and they're all part of the Manhattan Project, and they're all funded by the UK US taxpayer, and they're all designed to make nuclear weapons even more effective than they already are. Give me some break. The sad truth is that we don't have the political will in any country to stop the Manhattan Project. It's just too big. It keeps rolling on to our detriment. Let me sound rather pessimistic, but I'm afraid it's pretty well the truth. Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to touch upon now? <laughs> <laughs> we should try and end on an optimistic note. The thing is that in the United States right now, the nuclear industry is in severe decline. Many of the reactors are well past their sell-by date. They're uneconomic to run. The electricity they produce is just too expensive. There's only one station being built in South Carolina, I believe, and its future is highly, highly problematic. The problem, of course, is that in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives, the nuclear industry rules supreme. They have got many, many congresspersons and senators tied up in knots. Very difficult to counter it. By the way, it's exactly the same in Britain and in France and in Canada. The nuclear industry has got the legislature of all those countries very, very tightly tied up in a box, just exactly where they want them. Very difficult to overcome the straitjackets that were put on all the governments that I've talked about: U.S., Canada, France, Britain. It's pretty bad. However, there is hope. Look what happened in Germany. They decided to abandon nuclear power, and they've done it. I think there's only two reactors still running, and at the end of this year, 2022, they'll be shut. Germany has made it quite categorically clear that、uh, there will be shutting down this year, and quite a few countries in Europe、uh, who said no to nuclear power. Italy, Austria, Denmark, Norway, Spain, Portugal. So there's the hope for us yet. 
And if you, if you turn to the United States, uh, quite a few anti-nuclear groups, both in the East Coast and the West Coast, who are doing sterling work indeed in opposing the continuation of the nuclear power stations in the United States. And here's to them. They're doing a great job. As are you. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Ian Fairley, it's always great to have you on the show and be able to partake of your expertise. And I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. My pleasure again, Libby. Dr. Ian Fairley. He is a London-based radiation biologist and independent consultant on radioactivity in the environment. We will have a link up to his website, ianfairley.org, and to the primer on radiation and radioactivity that he created for the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. Those links will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 574. Activists, Activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. This terrific piece of news from Joe Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project. A Japanese filmmaker is coming to St. Louis to create a documentary about radiation exposure in the United States, specifically focusing on the baby tooth survey. A scientific survey started in 1959 to ascertain if above-ground nuclear testing was causing harmful radioactive chemicals to get into people's bodies. This study was created by Joe Mangano and Radiation and Public Health. Scientists collected and tested baby teeth because they needed bone samples for the study. The filmmaker is now looking for people who participated in the study to talk to for his documentary which will play on television in Japan, and hopefully travel to theaters and film festivals in the U.S. when complete. If you think you qualify, contact Joe Mangano at radiation.org, and we'll have a link up to his direct email so you can respond to him. By the way, after this baby tooth survey, it was proven that American children were exposed to the radioactive materials And this result was said to be instrumental in President John F. Kennedy moving to end atmospheric tests of nuclear weapons. And HBO had such enormous international response to its five-part dramatic series on Chernobyl that now they are presenting a new documentary entitled Chernobyl, The Lost Tapes. It premieres on Wednesday, June 22nd on HBO and exposes the shocking lies that the Soviet government fed its citizens in an effort to downplay the dangers of the Chernobyl explosion, even as officials who knew better protected themselves. Among the recently discovered and previously unseen footage is video originally shot to be propaganda as the country scurried to downplay the severity of the event. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or icanw.org, fema.gov, nypost.com, riverfronttimes.com, tri-cityherald.com, penlive.com, theamericanscholar.org, tokyo-np.co.jp, reuters.com, japantimes.co.jp, nhk.or.jp, 
newsdig.tbs.co.jp, mynichi.jp, kyoronews.net, scmp.org, abc.net.au, democracynow.org, asahi.com, barons.com, nytimes.com, nbmediascoop.org, dailycause.com, environmentaljournal.online, cambridge.org, and the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks, as always, to Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for the weekly Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. If you would like to make certain you never miss another episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, you can get it delivered via email every week. Go to nuclearhotseat.com, find the yellow box, put in your first name and your email address, and once a week, that's all, we will send you notification of the most recent episode, a link, and a brief rundown of some of the material that is in it. You can also sign up for Nuclear Hot Seat on your favorite podcast channel. And if you have a community radio station in your area, the show is syndicated for broadcast through Pacifica. If you want more information on how to sign the station up, just let me know. Info at NuclearHotSeat.com, and I'll get the information to you. Now, that's also the email if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview. Info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, and click on the red button. Anything you do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, website, names of any guests whose comments you use, and, oh, by the way, me. This is Libby Halevi, producer host of Nuclear Hot Seat, which is launching into the 12th year of this weekly show, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins, but we can never come up with the date that it's over, because once it starts, it's never over. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.